Well, this morning we are continuing with our Thursday morning series on, uh, of sermons on uh, scriptural canticles or songs of the Bible. Today's canticle is one of the best known, Mary's Song of Praise, commonly known by the first word in its Latin version, Magnificat anima mea dominum, my soul magnifies the Lord. The song appears, as, as we have heard in the reading, in the first chapter of Luke, in the scene where Mary has just gone to visit Elizabeth. Elizabeth has just declared Mary to be blessed because she has been chosen by the Lord to give birth to the Messiah. The Magnificat is Mary's song of praise and response. In his influential book, The Politics of Jesus, John Howard Yoder says that while we are not used to thinking of Mary as a social and political revolutionary, that is exactly what she sounds like in the Magnificat. Someone who would have been quite at home among the ranks of the Maccabean rebels, celebrating one of their victories over the armies of their Hellenistic rulers. Indeed, the song is marked by a strikingly revolutionary and triumphal tone. God has shown the strength of his arm. God has cast down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Yoder goes on to say that at least we would be more able to hear this revolutionary tone if it were not, and I'm quoting him here, if it were not for the history of vain repetition in the liturgical use of the Magnificat. As someone who has been greatly enriched by the 40 years or so in which I have engaged in the liturgical repetition of the Magnificat, finding it anything but vain, I'd like to think that Yoder was speaking a little tongue-in-cheek here. After all, he had a lot of friends and admirers from the more liturgical traditions. It might even be said in response that the revolutionary and triumphal tone of the Magnificat stands out even more sharply in the service of morning prayer, where the song is extracted from its scriptural content and is read or sung as a standalone text. Be that as it may, this morning I would like to look at the Magnificat for a few moments within its context in the Gospel of Luke, thinking especially of its, its character as a hymn of triumph. Now in doing this, it certainly isn't my intention to take the sharp revolutionary edge off the hymn. Nevertheless, there are some things worth thinking about that emerge when we read it as part of the story Luke wants to tell. The first thing to note is hinted at already in the concluding part of the song. God has helped his servant Israel according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Throughout the first two chapters of Luke's Gospel, both John and Jesus are introduced in terms that are very much in keeping with traditional Jewish expectations about the Messiah and the restoration of Israel. The angel Gabriel announces to Mary that the Lord God will give to Jesus the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Zechariah sees in the birth of his son John a sign that, that God will raise up a mighty salvation for us, 
in the house of his servant David, someone who will rescue us from the hands of our enemies so that we might serve God without fear. After the birth of Jesus, Simeon is introduced as one who is looking forward to the consolation of Israel. Likewise, Anna is looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Luke begins his story of Jesus then within the world of humble, pious, faithful Jews, all of them living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord and waiting expectantly for the liberation of Jerusalem and the restoration of Israel. A reader who comes to Luke without any knowledge of the Christian story would expect at this point that the story to follow would be one in which faithful Israel is delivered from its situation of oppression and suffering by the mighty victory that God accomplishes through the Messiah, thus bringing the promises made through the prophets to grand fulfillment. Mary's triumphal hymn differs from this straightforward story of suffering, victory, and fulfillment only in her use of the past tense. God has already cast down the mighty and lifted up the lowly. God has already come to Israel's aid in fulfillment of the promise. Evidently for Mary, the miraculous conception of the Messiah in the past is enough in itself to guarantee that the deliverance of Israel is an imminent certainty. We, however, are not innocent first-time readers. We know much more than Mary or Elizabeth do about how the story unfolds from here. Yes, we know that the story will involve suffering, victory, and fulfillment, but we also know that it will be much more complicated than a simple story of how the people of Israel are delivered from their enemies and from the hand of all who hate them by the mighty victory that God accomplishes through the Messiah. And so we cannot help but read the story of Mary's visit to Elizabeth with a certain element of anxious irony. Mary does not yet know that the one who Gabriel said would sit on the throne of his father David would be an itinerant preacher with nowhere to lay his head. Mary does not yet know that her son would die with the powerful still on their thrones and the humble still in a state of oppression. Mary is unaware that the announcement of Jesus as King of the Judeans would come in the form of a mocking notice attached to his cross by a representative of the world's most powerful ruler. What would she have thought about her hymn of triumph at these points in the story? Would she have been inclined to ask with John the Baptist, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Or would she have shared the disappointment of the disciples on the road to Emmaus? We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. The implication being that Jesus obviously couldn't have been. This is not the way the story of the Messiah is meant to end. But we also know that this is not the end of the story. God does show strength with his arm by raising Jesus from the dead. There is a mighty victory, this time over death itself. 
And it turns out that this is how the promises are being fulfilled through the life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah. But it is not the story that readers thought they were in for at the outset. The suffering of Israel as a people is a suffering that is also borne by the Messiah. The subjugation of the poor and hungry at the hands of the rich and powerful is also the experience of the Messiah himself. As Jesus himself says at the end of the Gospel, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and only then enter into his glory? By the end of the Gospel, then, we are in a position to see that while the story is one of suffering, victory, and fulfillment, the victory is won in an unexpected way, and the fulfillment is of a kind in which the promises are enlarged and reshaped, even as they are being fulfilled. By the end of the Gospel, we are also in a position to see that in a real sense, the Magnificat can be understood as the story of Jesus from beginning to end. Jesus as the humble one who joins with the faithful poor of Israel in their suffering, even to the point of death, but is raised in a mighty show of divine strength, thus defeating the powers of sin and death and preparing the way for that grand reversal that will set all things right. But we cannot end here. Even if, as we repeat the words of the, of the Magnificat in our uh, regular worship and later uh, in, in song uh, this morning, we read it in light of the whole story, and even if we read the Magnificat in light of the whole story of Jesus, we are nevertheless all too aware that we continue to live in a world where the powerful still seem to be sitting comfortably on their thrones, where the rich seem to be getting ever richer at the expense of the lowly, where the poor are going hungry in a world of plenty, and where the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham and all his descendants seems to be receding ever further into the horizon. There's much that could be said here, but here I suggest that we can find a measure of hope and confidence in Mary's use of the past tense. Mary proclaims her hymn of triumph at a point in between the conception of the Messiah and the victory of the resurrection. The display of God's power in the conception of the Messiah gives her such confidence in the ultimate victory that she can speak about it in the past tense. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. While we are located at a different point in the story, we too find ourselves located between a mighty act of God in the past and the expectation of fulfillment in the future. We live in between the Christ is risen and the Christ will come again. We may not want to follow Mary's example and put it all into the past tense. The intervening history between her day and ours leads us to be more cautious. Nevertheless, we have every reason to share her confidence. The resurrection of Christ gives us full confidence that the restoration of all things is assured. Magnificamus Dominum, let us magnify the Lord. Amen.